Welcome one, welcome all to New Mexico in Focus for Friday, February 25th, 2022. As usual, I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. Lots of great content in store for you this week, and we're going to jump in right away with our line opinion panel. This week, we're joined virtually over Zoom by regular Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group Public Relations, also Kathy McGill from the Black Leadership Council, and we welcome back to the show T.J. Trout. He, of course, hosts the afternoon drive time show on KKOB FM radio. Uh, longtime friend of the show. Always love having TJ in. And it is the hot button issue topic of the day. That was the governor's surprise announcement that the indoor mask uh, mandate was no longer in effect. She did that in a post press conference after the legislative session after we taped last week. And we still have a lot of folks, uh, UNM being one, that are still deciding what exactly they want to do as that uh, decision from the governor really gave them the authority to make their own decisions. We've seen a lot of school districts go ahead and lift the mask mandate. Uh, Some are holding on, Santa Fe Public Schools, at least for a little while. Lots of decisions to be made, lots of questions, again, about the timing and the science behind it. Lots of questions about folks with uh, immunocompromised uh, situations or loved ones in those situations. So let's dive right in, get some thoughts and reflections on all of this from our line opinion panel. Welcome to our line opinion panel this week, and thank you for making the time to be here with us. First, we're happy to have Kathy McGill back with us. Kathy is the founder and director of the New Mexico Black Leadership Council. We're also welcoming back our good friend Tom Garrity from the Garrity Group Public Relations. And it's great to see TJ Trout at the virtual table, host of the Afternoon Drive show on KKOB. Thank you all for joining us this week. Now, shortly after the end of the legislative session, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham made an abrupt announcement ending the New Mexico's indoor mask mandate. It came a week after State Health Director David Scrace told the public he thought the mandate was still necessary. Now, Dr. Scrace addressed the media on Wednesday for the first time since the mandate was scrapped. He says he consulted with the governor and that the data shows this was a prudent move. Some have questioned the timing of this, speculating there could be some politics here from the governor. How do you see this motivation here, T.J. Trout? Let's start with you. What's behind the move to end the mask mandate? Well, uh, I'm not a doctor, Mm -hmm. as you know. Just, just so you know that. But uh, <laughs> we all breathe a sigh of relief when you said that. <laughs> I had a conversation on the air with Barry Ramo mm-hmm. uh, about this uh, a couple days ago, and about COVID in general. He thinks it's too soon, oh. but, but I don't. And, and, and here's why. I mean, looking at the COVID numbers and the infection rate dropping and the hospitalizations dropping. I'm thinking, I imagine the state saw this coming and, and, you know, I'm I'm not usually like this, but I'm actually kind of hopeful on this, you know, Mm -hmm. barring any new horrible variant coming our way. Although there was a little, uh, what, uh, not so good news about the new BA2 variant that that just hit the news today. Mm -hmm. Um, But barring any, if if it's not horrible, it would seem to me that the country in New Mexico might actually be, 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 be seeing our numbers shrink to the point, maybe we're getting to the point where it's not a crisis anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm believing that the, the Dr. Scrace and uh, the governor are seeing data mm-hmm. that is coming in that might actually predict 
what we're seeing right now. I mean, that's not that it's not a responsibility not to protect those who are most vulnerable because we really need to move and shift on to doing that. Our seniors and our people who are immunocompromised mm-hmm. need to be protected. Now we got to concentrate on those people and make sure we keep them safe. Um, but if you look at the stats, Gene, uh, most people who die from this still are unvaccinated, granted. Yep. But also, if you look a little deeper into the stats, most people who are dying from this are elderly and uh, and immunocompromised. Yep. Hey, uh, Kathy, TJ mentioned Dr. Scrace pointing out several pieces of data during his presentation this week showing cases dropping, hospitalizations, deaths all dropping at a significant rate. Not a little bit, significant. So for those who think this happened too early, Weren't these positive changes the priority from the state? I mean, it seems pretty consistent, no? Well, I think that it sort of just got all like, you know, put together in this kind of mumbo jumbo and the public's like, wait a minute, you Mm -hmm. just said one thing. Now you're saying something else. Should we have believed you before or should we believe you now? So it becomes an issue with whether or not uh, the citizenry trust what the information that's coming out of the government Mm -hmm. you know we believe that you know it's facts based that masks do work and so you know i I don't think that that's really uh in question based on the science but what happens is that people just don't know whether or not they can trust what comes out of um those offices because they believe that it's tainted um you know by politics and the culture wars that we've been experiencing related to uh, these mass mandates. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are just saying, you know, I'm just going to do what feels right for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure if we've lost an opportunity um, to develop trust for what we need to do going forward, uh, having gotten rid of this mass mandate, although we're following what the rest of the country is doing right mm-hmm. now. Good point there. Hey, Tom, without this mandate, uh, it's now, let me talk about schools here. Individual school districts are now in charge of deciding whether or not to enact a masking rule in classrooms. So I got to ask, is it fair to shift this burden on the districts or was this just an inevitability of the decision making? Well, you know, there's there's always going to be the shifting whenever this, you know, as long as the public health orders exist, you know, there are there's always going to be opportunity for additional uh, interpretation of what the rules are. Uh, you know, I think one of the key things that Dr. Scrace said that's relevant to the question you asked is as he wrapped up or as the news coverage wrapped up, uh, Dr. Scrace says the, the responsibility of deciding how to keep ourselves stay safe has moved from the state government to the individual. Mm. And I thought that that quote uh, that was in the Albuquerque Journal was just really so telling because all of a sudden now, uh, you know, the focus is on the individual and we're all kind of responsible. Uh, and so I think I see a lot of shifting of the responsibility from government, uh, you know, to uh, other entities, whether it be a school district, of course, hospitals, mask right. mandates are still in place, That's right. uh, elder care facilities, mask mandate is still in place. And that's good. I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm in favor of that. I don't know to, answer, to kind of chime in on the thought if it's too early. Sure. You know, initially, everything, the medical solution of the masking was to slow the spread of COVID. And now with the positivity rate below 10%, um, it seems as if that has worked. So it's time to relook at it uh, because the impact from the mask mandate has uh, impacted so many different organizations and individuals, mm-hmm. uh, both for the good as well as for the bad. Yeah, I saw some recent uh, numbers on what's happened to the restaurant industry and continues to. It's, it's really just ugly. Hey, TJ, w- one quick uh, last point on the school thing. 
Uh, when you think about it, there's been a lot of other states that have done this mask mandate kick down to the schools. And what's resulted is the schools have become a flashpoint for protesting. Even the administration building uh, buildings. Do we want that? Do we want the protests to now be concentrated on the on the doorsteps of our schools instead? Well, I think I think I'm not. A, I don't have kids, so I can't personally uh, talk to the uh, how I would feel if I had kids in the schools. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I understand, though, that parents are very concerned. But if the parents are concerned, they need to be concerned less about the politics and more about the science and more about uh, what's real and what's not real. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I want to uh, talk something about Kat, what Catherine just said about the trust, the public trust. And obviously, we're going through a whole bunch of stuff now re re related to public trust, not just in science, mm -hmm. but just in politics. But I, I think people people need to realize, I don't know if the state was good at, at, at getting this message out. Science naturally changes. Science changes with acquired knowledge. Mm -hmm. Science changes with knowledge. Science, science changes with experience. That's the way it works. That's the way it's always worked. And people need to understand that. And if people don't understand that, well, maybe people should try to educate themselves a little better so they do understand it. And maybe the state should take a look at this and say, well, well maybe we're not getting the message out the best way possible. Mm -hmm. it, Kathy, it's hard, though. I mean, I've had people <laughs> confuse Dr. Fauci working for the state and confuse Dr. Scrace working for the federal government. I mean, they just confuse who's getting messages from where and what. So I'm just curious your opinion about how what teacher just mentioned. If we have to go back to a mask mandate at some point, it, it, does the governor have the clout to be able to say, hey, guys, we're going to go back on, on a mask re regime here? She has positional authority to do that, and go. they've mm -hmm. left the door open uh, to say that if we need to go back, we will. And I think that's what people need to understand, that they can issue another, uh, you know, public health order saying mm -hmm. that, you know, what well, we decided we're going to do it again. Whether or not that's going to happen um, for a lot of reasons remains to be seen. Right. But, um, you know, it is, I totally wholeheartedly agree with TJ that it's about the citizenry educating yourself, like get the facts is what I'll just say about everything and every issue, get the facts. Mm -hmm. That's a hard one. Hey, Tom, real quick, the Navajo Nation keeping its mask mandate despite the governor's announcement. I'm curious if the state should have consulted uh, with Native tribes and other groups before making this decision. Uh, you know, meaning could this lack of uniform, uniformity cause some problems out there? Yes, it will cause confusion, uh, but you know the you know the Navajo Nation has its audience, and uh, you know the Navajo Nation knows how best to communicate, uh, you know, with its residents. Uh, so you know, I, I don't think that the uh, that there will be that much confusion. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to the points that have briefly been made about trust of government uh, versus trust of uh, of doctors and physicians. You know, the what we have seen both nationally in our own surveys. Uh, uh, over the last 10 years is that doctors and physicians are seen as much more trusted than government officials mm -hmm. who have been on a steady decline for the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for government government to come out and say, trust us, uh, that automatically meets against the a wall of uh, disbelief. So, you know, there is a lot of work that government can do to build trust and transparency, but it's not something that's done uh, overnight. Mm -hmm. Hey, Teach Runder, about a minute and a half here. Uh, real quick, Dr. Scrace made the point and Kathy, I want you to get your uh, thought on this too. To respect this, the decisions of others, whether or not they're masked or not, if you see someone doing the opposite, to just be respectful. Are we in that place now, TJ? Can we do that now and just be respectful to people's choices? 
<laughs> Your guess is as good as mine yeah, on that one. Mm-hmm. But obviously, we, we don't we don't want to see fist fights break out in uh, in Smiths. Uh, it's bad enough what people do to each other on airplanes these days. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, yes, re- just just have some common courtesy, respect each other. Don't don't be don't be a jerk. How's that? Are those words to live by? There you go. Just 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 be polite. Four simple words. All. That's right, Kathy. Your thought on that? Uh, the the idea of respect in that, this world. You know, uh, find out what it means to me. I mean, mm-hmm. just understand that. Uh, your rights end at the tip of my nose. So, um, you know, people need to do what's best for them, I guess, at that point. And we hope that that we're thinking about what other people need uh, as we're walking through this society where, you know, our fates are inextricably bound. Mm-hmm. Good point there. Hey, thank you all for that discussion. We'll bring the panel back in just a little over five minutes. Talk about breaking news on PM's plan to avoid blackouts this summer. Got a question for you. Have you ever heard of a pastoral letter? This pertains uh, specifically to the Catholic Church, and recently the Archbishop of the Archdiocese of Santa Fe uh, crafted and released a pastoral letter that is really one of the most high-profile, heavily weighted things that he can do as an archbishop, as direct communication to his flock and his followers. And this one was all about a call for nuclear disarmament, which, uh, of course, is very front and center in many people's minds uh, based on what we see going on this week in Ukraine and the Russian aggression there. But uh, it's also interesting for a letter like this in New Mexico, where we have two national labs that are tied into the nuclear arsenal, also nuclear weapons uh, stored at Kirtland Air Force Base. So we wanted to find out why now for this pastoral letter and uh, what the archbishop is hoping to accomplish, uh, starting with dialogues with different communities about this. And so a really fascinating conversation. We only had a chance to give you a snippet on the Friday night show on New Mexico PBS, but we're going to bring it to you in full here with correspondent Megan Kamrick. Archbishop Wester, thank you for joining us on New Mexico in Focus. It's an honor to be with you, Megan. Thanks for inviting me. In your pastoral letter, Living in the Light of Christ's Peace, a conversation towards nuclear disarmament, you talk about growing up as part of the generation doing nuclear drills by hiding under your desk during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But it was a visit to Japan in September 2017 that really changed your point of view on nuclear weapons. Why? Well, I just, uh, two bishops and I went on a little vacation. A part of that was to visit Nagasaki and Hiroshima and um, it was really sobering and uh, it took us out of the vacation mode and put us into more of a reflective mode, just looking at the museums, the, the art, you know, the, all the different uh, ways that the atomic bombs, uh, you know, the effect that they had in Japan, the, the pictures of uh, people suffering after the attack. And it was just so um, horrific. And uh, especially with the children, I mean, the whole thing was difficult, but uh, I read that uh, the children saw the bright light and they ran to the window to see what the light was, you know, and I can only imagine what happened either then or shortly after with the exposure to the radiation. So, and then coming back to Santa Fe and taking friends, you know, through the museums and all that and seeing, well, here's where 
those very bombs were built and manufactured and sent off to, to Japan. So uh, it just really, uh, I think the, it just really it touched me very deeply. And um, so here, it just, I felt that we should be, as the Archdiocese and the Catholic Archdiocese of Santa Fe, we should be part of this conversation that would lead toward uh, non-proliferation and nuclear disarmament. How did this trip, this realization affect your view of New Mexico's very large role in the creation of nuclear weapons and the state's ongoing role in this industry through our national laboratories and other things? Well, it's a very complex, a good question, Megan. It's a complicated question in my mind. I mean, I think, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a question of, um, obviously, uh, on one level, uh, I'm very proud of our laboratories, you know, Lanol and Sandia. I think it's, uh, these are wonderful scientists who are committed to science, committed to uh, the country and doing, you know, good things. I think it's, so from that point of view, I, I respect what they do. And I think they do a lot of things and can do a lot, of even more things, you know, that really build up life and, and help our planet and our uh, human beings. But um, on the other hand, uh, you know, these are uh, weapons of war and uh, that's not their fault. You know, human beings have been at war with each other since, uh, you know, time immemorial. So I think it's up to uh, all of us, uh, you know, citizens of the world to, to speak to this, you know, so it's not a, you know, I'm on the one hand, I'm proud of, of the place that New Mexico has in terms of helping our country, you know, out and, but, but we need to go beyond that. And we need to use this technology, this scientific know-how to uh, uh, get beyond nuclear wars, because what we've created is something that changes the entire dynamic, you know, of war. It's just completely a different, it's a paradigmatic shift. And so we have to take a second look at, you know, you know, the just war theory and what constitutes a just war and all that. It's changed now with atomic weapons. Hmm. And the just war theory, if you could remind our viewers and listeners, um, this was a, uh, a doctrine developed by the church. Yes, this was uh, St. Augustine is famous for it many centuries ago, the, the, the just war theory that he looks at, you know, uh, it has to be an, an appropriate response. It has to be something that protects innocent civilians, etc. The motivation has to be looked at. It has to have a reasonable a chance of success. He has a, a series of criteria that have to be met for it to be a just war. But in the um, uh, with atomic weapons, as you can imagine, all those criteria seem to get uh, no pun intended blown up, you know, because that's uh, you know how do you prevent innocent people, non-combatants, from being killed in an atomic attack? The whole world would be destroyed conceivably. Um, going back to uh, Japan and. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, my father served in the Pacific in World War II and his ship swept mines ahead of large invasions. I bring this up because despite his Catholic faith, he was internally divided over what the right choice was with that first bomb in Hiroshima. Given what we knew about Japan's seeming unwillingness to surrender, um, but you note in your pastoral letter, there is historical debate on how necessary these bombs were. Yes, that's a, I, I debated that point, you know, leaving that in or not. Um, I think it's, 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 an, it's a debate. It's an open question. Um, there are many who've written about it on both sides of the issue. Um, some say that, you know, and indeed it was something that saved American lives and that was an important, had, we had to do it. Others say, no, we knew that the war was coming to a close. We had evidence that 
despite the uh, um, the um, uh, ferocity of the Japanese generals at the time, that we had had a sense that they were going to uh, uh, surrender. So I don't really know about that. I, I I left it in there because I'm trying to start a conversation about this, and this is part of that conversation, and this is part of the. You know, even now with the terrible tension between Russia and Ukraine and, and NATO and the West and the United States, uh, you know, we're living in, a, in, in which is going to be someone's history someday. And I'm sure that they'll be looking at motivations then. Was this, did President Biden do the right thing by adopting a hard line with NATO and all? Or should we have done this or that? Or, you know, what was Putin's, what are his? So, I mean, that's always going to be a question, but, but I think it, it brings to the, to the focus, it brings focus to the fact that uh, these are the kinds of things that happen in our world and will happen. And so if we have nuclear weapons and if we were, heaven forbid, got to the point where we use them on each other, it would be catastrophic. And so so I think that I want this to be a conversation, not really about a historical one about should we have dropped the bombs mm. in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but I want it to be a conversation on should we work toward nuclear disarmament. And of course, I think you know, we've committed to it in the past, but we've, we, we, it's, it's lagging, you know, that commitment is lagging. And as you know, many of these protocols we pulled out of, or that they've been deferred for the future, you know, so. I like that thought of we are living in what will be somebody's history in the yeah. future. It's an yeah. interesting yeah. idea to, to contemplate. As you point out, there have been people in the Catholic Church who have spoken out against nuclear weapons over the years and have even served prison time for protests. In the 1980s, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops released a pastoral letter on war and peace calling for progressive disarmament. This was at a time when the possibility of an all-out nuclear war with the Soviet Union at the time seemed like a real possibility. Why do you see a need for to push for disarmament now, people might feel like, well, we no longer have that two minutes to midnight on the atomic clock, right? Right, and I think that, you know, in back in 1983, when the bishops of the USCCB wrote that pastoral, uh, I think they were, you know, moving toward that direction of, of disarmament. And, and at that time though, there was still a belief in deterrence. And I think that, and the church, as I understand it, the Catholic church and other religious denominations, held that there was a morally acceptable, uh, it was morally acceptable to have nuclear weapons for deterrence. But I think we see now that Pope Francis has changed that uh, considerably when he went to Hiroshima in 2019 and he gave his speech there and he said that the mere possession of nuclear arms is immoral. That really changed the whole uh, landscape of the moral question of having nuclear arms in my view and, 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 and the view of the Pope. and. and and I think that that's, he's right, because I think that they're so destructive and they're so powerful, more powerful than we can even imagine. I mean, the bombs, sadly, that were dropped in Japan in 1945 were like little pop guns compared to what we have right now. And so, and then, and the number of the, of the weapons that we have, that we in Russia have, uh, you know, that, you know, you only need a few hundred weapons to be for deterrence. We have thousands. And, and, and we do know that from documents that have been made available to the public that, uh, that we have plans, we've strategized, you know, for first strikes, uh, generals have talked about that. So it's not simply deterrence, there have been. So I think that that argument is off the table in my opinion, and now we just have to really be serious about nuclear disarmament. 
Many of the scientists in the Manhattan Project were focused on creating the first bomb before Nazi Germany created it. And some even had fled Nazi Germany. And I bring that up because today there are people working in the national laboratories who may have a similar sense of mission by protecting the nuclear arsenal. What would you say to them? Well, I would say that um, the nuclear arsenal is it's a false sense of protection. It's a false sense of security. I know that you know, we all feel that we watch, you know, Rambo-like movies and the powerful United States. And, and, but it's a, it's a false sense because it's, it, it, it's, it's not protecting us. As a matter of fact, it's probably our greatest threat, I would say, in the world today. You know, we talk about, uh, Father, Pope Francis talks about Mother Earth, you know, our common home and climate change and doing what we can to help the Earth. Well, here's a huge threat, you know, that if this ever was unleashed, that it would be catastrophic. So I don't think that it, it is uh, by, by modernizing our weapons, by continuing to develop them, uh, we're not protecting anybody. It's, 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 that's just not true. The, the real protection of humanity, of the globe, of the, of the world, would be for us to come together and to, and to use diplomacy to talk with one another and to work out our differences that way and to get rid of nuclear arms. I'm not naive, I realize that you know, a lot of these countries are not gonna just go, oh, okay, well, that's, that, what a fine idea you have, Mr. President, well, let's all do that. It's gonna be difficult and, and we hope we can avoid even war with conventional armaments. But the point is that, uh, you know, I compare it in my own mind, you know, even to the argument we talk about with guns. You know, if you've got a, one of those sub, uh, automatic weapons, you can kill a lot of people in a very short time. If I have a knife, I might kill somebody, but it's going to be limited, you know. So both are bad. You know, we, we want to get rid of all instruments of, of, of destruction and weapons like that, but in the sense to be used for war. But I think in this case, uh, uh, we need to get rid of nuclear armaments because they're so destructive. Um, New, New Mexico is a poor state, as you know, with very few industries producing well-paying jobs. The national laboratories represent billions of dollars of economic impact. That includes businesses that rely on work with the labs. What if people face losing their livelihoods if disarmament brings an end to the nuclear industry here? It's my view, and I realize, again, this is a very good question you ask, and I have a deep concern for many of our Catholic people and, and, and all my fellow citizens in New Mexico work in the, in the labs, and that's the source of livelihood. But I really firmly believe that this would not uh, endanger that, because if we were really to, to pursue this nuclear disarmament, it would require even more from our labs, because that's going to take all kinds of technology to verify we're not going to just accept the fact that a certain country says, okay, we've gotten rid of them. Oh, isn't it? thank you very much. We'll send you a thank you note. No, we want to, as President Reagan said, trust but verify. That's a huge industry right there hmm. to make sure that everybody has indeed disarmed and, and, and to make sure that we have ways that nobody, especially a rogue nation or terrorists, could not come up with a, a nuclear uh, a bomb. So that's going to, and I think also there are many, many other things that our labs are already doing that are that are that, that promote life instead of destruction. And I think that would be, I would compare it myself to any, you know, in the industrial revolution, the the computer revolution, all the when there'd been these huge, you know, macro uh, transitions in our world. Uh, there is, I don't, I know that there will be some people, no doubt, individuals. Well, it might be hard and not easy to make the transition. 
look, I like I'm you know I look at, I'm from the Bay Area. I look at the toll takers, and now everything is automated. You just drive right through. So I'm sure those toll takers maybe had early retirement, but they also there were jobs created when you had to put in the new fast track systems and all that. So I think that um, I think it's very possible. And and furthermore, um, I think this is so necessary. Disarmament is so necessary that if there are sacrifices and there may be some, and I would, you know, I, I, I understand that, but there would be important sacrifices for the sake of humanity because we're, we're on a path right now that's insane. As you note in your pastoral letter, and this is a quote, in recent years, Pope Francis has led the church in a dramatic shift away from supporting nuclear weapons and deterrence to denouncing them as immoral, calling for their complete abolition. And in 2017, Pope Francis publicly declared that nuclear deterrence is morally unacceptable. I need to ask you, given the numerous revelations of widespread sexual abuse in the church, which also failed to address these abuses for years, how challenging is it to take a moral stance such as this letter does and ensure that people will receive it in the spirit mm-hmm. that you intend? Yes, that's, that's true, Megan. I acknowledge that. I think that the, the sexual abuse scandal has been a terrible, terrible uh, blight in the Catholic Church. And it's not just the Catholic Church, of course, but it certainly mm-hmm. hit the Catholic Church very hard. And it's something that uh, and I, I think it does very much weaken our moral voice. There's no doubt about it. I don't think, however, though, that that means that we should be silent. I think we still need to speak up and still hope that people will respond. I think that some will point to that. They'll say, well, I'm not going to listen to them. I mean, they couldn't get their house in order, you know, with the abuse scandal. So what, what do they know? That would be, of course, not a logical argument. That's not a reason to dispute, you know, what we're putting out in the letter. But I think some people will say that, and that's unfortunate, and I regret that. I do think that since 2002, especially with our Dallas meeting of the bishops in Dallas, you know, that the Catholic, that's something to be looked at. What the church has done since then in the last 20 years uh, to form a safe environment programs and to, we've spent millions of dollars with the John Jay College of, uh, of Law and Criminal Law and to do a cause and effect studies and to look at, you know, what, how did this happen in the church? How did this abuse take place? So I think the church has done quite a bit. Again, there'll be many people that, you know, will say, oh, that was wonderful. We, we respect what you've done. Others will say, well, big deal. You know, they're not going to be too inclined to, to mm-hmm. pat us on the back. But I do think that we've done a lot. And, and frankly, if you look at the statistics and look at the, you know, the number of abuses taken place since these programs, it's been low. So I think, A, there's evidence that the church has worked hard to really do the best we can and to rectify those terrible, terrible sins. And secondly, I think that the the document speaks for itself. The logic, you know, uh, of the importance of nuclear disarmament hopefully will speak for itself. But you do raise a good important. I'm glad you raised it because it needs to be said. Do you uh, how do you feel about how the letter has been received so far, I guess, in light of that reality? Do you think that the dynamic we just talked about has impacted that at all? I haven't heard that. No, uh, I did. I, I think I did hear one or two people you know, in passing, you know, say something like that. It's very, you know, kind of in passing, but no, nothing. The The response I've gotten mainly has been very positive, actually. Um, I, I do think that I'm probably hearing from the choir, you know, I people that would be, you know, agree. And, and, uh, and uh, I think that's, uh, you know, but um 
Uh, I am, I'm hoping eventually to go up to uh, Los Alamos and speak. We have a group up there, Catholic scientists, and I'd like to speak to them. And I've talked to the pastor up there, Father John Daniel, and at Immaculate Heart of Mary Parish in Los Alamos. And uh, so I'd like to, because again, you know, I, and I, uh, I think there was kind of a sense, well, do you really want to go up to Los Alamos right now? You know, maybe better stay away for a while. But I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't go up there to, uh, you know, to debate. I would go up there to learn and to convert. My whole point in this is to start a conversation about it, to hear what people have to say. And uh, that's the only way we're going to get to this goal, because there may be some people who bring up very valid objections that I need to hear and I need to learn from. And so we need to talk about those and, and to see what you know uh what those would be and and given those objections how can we take them and how can we you know still come to this uh end of nuclear disarmament so so i'm not uh, uh i don't want to you know start by you know pope francis i think famously said yes you know the bishops of the church are teachers but a good teacher has to listen first so my my hope would be to listen to people and what they have to say, and I hope then they would in turn listen to me or to us and and see how we can make progress in this. It's a bit less confrontational than the tactics some have taken to speak out against nuclear weapons from the church in the past. I'm thinking of Dorothy Day. I'm thinking of the nun you mentioned in your pastoral letter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and Father Louis Vitale, you know, mm -hmm. they had a more. It was not a um, you know. Well, it was. <laughs> They broke the law. I mean, that's and that's clearly what they wanted to do. They wanted to make a statement, and that was you know. And there's a room for protest, I, I think, within reason. I have my own opinions on that, but I do think there's a room for that, and it, there's a room for prophetic voices and, and to get people's attention. And uh, uh, there's always going to be a judgment call how best to do that. And if you're making more friends than enemies, you know that's a judgment call. But I do, I do, I admire people who feel strongly on these issues, but. I believe that uh, the best way to do it is to continue to try to dialogue and get to our elected representatives. And, you know, we've presented this uh, pastoral letter to President Biden and, and his uh, people in the West Wing and hope that it gets to him. And, and we're going to do the same with our elected officials here in New Mexico. Your letter is also a call to nonviolence, which goes beyond nuclear weapons. You invoke Martin Luther King, who says Jesus calls on us to love our enemies. In some ways, this is far more challenging a call than seeking nuclear disarmament. How realistic is that? Well, that's, you know, again, and that's a good question, Megan. And it's, of course, it's a very American question. You know, we, we are very utilitarian in the United States and practical and and yes, it is. Um, uh, but I believe you got to put the cookie jar of pie. You know, I think that um, uh, it's I think it is realistic. I think, though, that, again, I'll have to speak in my own terms as a person of faith and in the Catholic faith. I believe that the most persuasive arguments are made, you know, in, in, in humility and are made in, in, in peaceful ways and that the best approach is not to use power, but to use the way of the cross. You know, for us, Jesus said, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And so uh, I know that it does sound very naive, you know, to live in peace, you know, and, uh, but I firmly believe that, that, you know, planting those seeds uh, will produce great fruit in the future. Uh, I also believe that it's going to take a long time. I, I don't, you know, human nature being what it is, uh, that flight or fight instinct that we have in us. And then even now we see it so ex exacerbated with the polarization and 
in our country, in the world, in our church, even the Catholic Church, you know, so there's a lot of, uh, it's hard for people to sit down and really listen and really, you know, peacefully and, and to solve their problems peacefully, but I believe you have to start someplace and um, and I do believe we have to embrace the fact that Jesus uh, proclaimed a gospel of peace. Uh, he was very clear on that, you know, that he, and he died for, it. I mean, he, you know, when he was in front of Pontius Pilate, he didn't call down the legions of angels, you know, to wipe them out. He just, you know, went to his death in the way of the cross in a very vulnerable way. But I think we see a lot of examples where that vulnerability is very powerful and where it can, you know, you know, the, the pen is mightier than the sword, they say. Let's hope so. <laughs> and you say in your pastoral letter that, and you've been saying in our conversation, you want to start a statewide dialogue around these issues. How do you see these proceeding? What, what will they look like? Well, I think, uh, you know, one example I gave already would be if I go up to, uh, you know, Los Alamos, but that's just me. I would like to see our parishes, for example, and their, and their peace and justice commissions and committees, uh, you know, maybe take this up as a, as a topic and, and, I'd like to see us, you know, writing to our elected officials to, you know, express our concern about this issue. Uh, I think, you know, people can certainly, uh, there's a lot written about it. People can educate themselves about the matter instead of just accepting what we hear, but to really go into it and invest, investigate it and read about it. There's, we put in the letters some, a lot of practical uh, things that people can do, uh, enable to kind of in, in, in further the conversation. Um, I think that the more we think about it, pray about it, read about it, then we'll be able to kind of converse with others and to really talk about it. I, I think our elected officials, you know, that's a very important conversation, I think, because uh, they have the power and the ability to, in, 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 as our elected officials to serve us and to serve this cause. And, you know, if they really see that people are serious about it, I think they'll respond. I mean, let's face it, they... they <laughs> They, they want to be reelected. It would appear from my experience that elected officials like to be reelected and they seem to make decisions on that. And whenever we go to talk at the Capitol in DC or here in New Mexico at the Roundhouse, I hear that all the time. Well, Archbishop, this is an election year. You know, let's talk, we'll talk, do this later. So I'm discovering now that just about every year is an election year for somebody. So <laughs> I think that if we can convince them, you know, and I've talked to them and they say, well, you need to let us know. I mean, I remember even talking to Speaker Pelosi years ago on immigration and she was talking about, well, you got to get the people to run. We need to get those, our elected officials need to hear from the people. And if they're, if they're getting 10 letters on your side and 10,000 letters on the other side, guess who's going to, who they're going to lean toward. So so I think that's a very important way to do it as well. But I think it's that personal commitment. And, and frankly, I think part of what we're suggesting by an action item is that this is not an easy topic. I mean, who wants to think about nuclear annihilation? You know, who wants to think about even now with Ukraine and Russia? I mean, I don't know about you, but I, as I listen to NPR in the morning, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I get, uh, I sometimes brushing my teeth, I'm going, oh brother, this is getting serious. You know, I hope that, you know, there's no missteps. I mean, I remember, I remember reading Failsafe when I was a kid, you know, and, and that was, I remember being scared reading that book, you know, how, and I know historically, uh, if that, if that Russian uh, admiral had, had, he was one of the three that had okay the, the, the launching of the nuclear, he didn't okay it. I don't know what, I, I'd like to find out what happened to him, but I mean, uh, you know, that was a close call. We've had several close calls and the, and the, and the, and the Cuban missile crisis was a close call. I mean, 
I've talked to people, and one fellow who was in in that one of those ships. You know, he said they had they were loaded for bear. They were ready mm -hmm. to go. You know, so anyway. You do have a list of some of those close calls in your pastoral letter. Um, I don't know if people know just how many close calls we've had over the decades. Um, right, right here yeah. in Albuquerque, the, the, a, a bomb was dropped. Luckily, it didn't fire because of the, it was really what I might research. It was a switch. It was a little on off switch, a little low voltage switch that didn't uh, fire properly. The other, the other things did go and then it didn't and that didn't explode. But yeah, it's and again, you know, Murphy's law, I mean, you can live with Murphy's law if you're going to maybe uh, stub your toe or, you know, something like that. But with nuclear weapons, uh, Murphy's law makes me nervous. How can people be involved in these dialogues? You mentioned some of the parishes, social justice committees, but I think you want to engage beyond even Catholics. You, you want to engage everyone. Right. I think uh, Pax Christi, for example, is a, a group, Catholic group that's been around for 50 years almost. And they've been doing a lot of work in this regard, a lot, a lot. I, I'm discovering, you know, writing this peace pastoral from a pastor's point of view, but I'm, I'm, I'm on a steep learning curve. I'm learning because I've heard from a lot of people and all kinds of groups, you know, Nuke Watch here in New Mexico and all kinds of groups, uh, plowshares and all kinds of groups that are working on this. So I think by, you know, investigating, going online, investigating all these groups and seeing what they have to say, supporting them, you know, uh, financially, these are all ways of, of helping to further this cause, I think, and, and showing our concern. But you want to have dialogues. So you might, you want people to be in here who may not, might not be in support of these groups, right? Who want to be that's, talking think, about yeah. working in the industry or, or other issues. Exactly. I think that's very important because you know, if you just talk to people who agree with you, you don't get very far. We've got to, and that's why I said earlier, we got to really talk to people. I think it's more productive in a way, you know, once we've done our homework to talk to people uh, who do disagree and to find out why and to see, well, are they right? You know, if they are, then we need to change our view, you know, maybe, but I don't believe that's true. I think, you know, but I think that we need to engage that conversation and the truth will set you free. And I think we mustn't be afraid of the truth. And we want to, you know, if if someone says something that's an objection, we need to listen to that. And there may, there may be some very valid. And of course, a lot of this too is, uh, it's temporal, you know, it seems to me, you know, in other words, people may give objections. We'll say, okay, I can see where that's true today. You know, for example, today, February 9th is probably not a, a good day to talk about, you know, uh, what the United States is going to do to reduce our nuclear armaments. You know, right now we got to get this Ukraine crisis, you know, de-escalate that, and we have other things to tend to. But uh, uh, I, I, but I think we need to say in the long run, you know, and, and open this up and, and really see what's possible, and not look at it as, as you know, all these peaceniks they are just a pain in the neck, you know, they're preventing us from moving forward. Another thing that I think I have to say, and I, 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 I you know, it's, it's follow the money. There is a lot of money in the nuclear armament industry. I remember getting sick to my stomach when we, at our first, um, you know, time we went out in, in, um, in Iraq, uh, and um, I got a fax, in those days faxes were more popular, and advising me to buy stock in this nuclear uh, armament, in this um, armament, you know, they make uh, okay. guns. And I thought, isn't that awful? You know, uh, you know. To be honest, uh, weapons, weaponry, 
the United States is one of the largest suppliers of weapons in the world, you know, and uh, there's a lot of money. And so there's going to be a lot of objections to, to looking at nuclear disarmament and a lot of objections to living peaceably, you know. So we have to learn, I guess, for people to make money uh, out of peace instead of waging war. <laughs> well, Archbishop Wester, I appreciate you taking time to talk with us. Well, thank you, Megan. It's been a, an honor, really, and a joy to... I, 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 I've heard your voice so much over the years. It's nice to see you, uh, your face. So thank you very much. Appreciate you. Thank you. We're working very hard right now to look at some of the local impacts of what's happening in Ukraine, so closely tied to that conversation about nuclear disarmament. Uh, we are out at a rally of Ukrainian Americans of New Mexico today on Friday. And we want to bring you that as well as the conversation looking for that for next week. Looks like probably Tuesday. So keep an eye out for that. That would be on Facebook and YouTube, live streamed around lunchtime. If you're not already subscribed or liked or followed those, please do that. And you can always reach out to us there. We're also on Twitter and Instagram as well. Um, and we want to jump right back to the line opinion panel now. Reminder, that's Tom Garrity. Kathy McGill, and T.J. Trout. This time, we're looking at another news from the headlines. There had been for weeks rumblings about the possibility of rolling blackouts this summer during the hot months uh, from a variety of problems and issues, partly the closing of the coal-fired power plant in San Juan County, as well as complications in getting parts to fix uh, transmission lines and things because of the supply chain issues We've all been dealing with for a while now, and uh, in the middle of this week, PNM announced that there had been a decision agreement made to keep that coal-fired power plant open a few more months to get us through the summer, and so that we should be able to avoid those rolling blackouts. Brings up a lot of questions. You might remember that PNM recently had their request uh, for a merger with a Spanish company. Uh, and that was denied. And we also know that starting next year, the PRC that makes those decisions will be changed fundamentally from an elected body to an appointed body by the governor. And we don't know who the governor will be then, as there's an election this November. So lots tied up into this. Politics, as always, uh, is threaded throughout it. And so we want to find out what the line opinion panel has to say about all this. So let's jump right to it. PM, the state's largest electric utility, says it has a plan to avoid rolling blackouts during the summer, but the very existence of that plan is causing some concern and confusion for customers. Let's bring in our line opinion panelists once again to take a deeper look at this. The coal-fired San Juan generating station was slated to shut down at the end of June. The Public Regulations Commission says that energy will be replaced by a combination of solar and battery stored electricity, but PM says it might not be enough to make up the difference, citing supply chain issues and other challenges getting new energy resources up and running. Now, in breaking news this week, PM will keep one unit of the coal-fired plant running a bit longer than expected. Now, Tom, is this a no harm, no foul situation? Or perhaps should PM been better prepared for their own deadline? Uh, with an impending summer season right in their face. 
Uh, you know, there's a lot of different factors that, uh, you know, went into this whole discussion uh, mm -hmm. with the PRC and the Four Corners. Uh, at the center of it is the ETA, the Energy Transition Act, which requires utilities and governments to basically reduce their carbon footprint by relying more on, um, you know, carbonless uh, energy like uh, solar or wind. Uh, and so PNM was preparing a move in that particular realm. And uh, then all of a sudden COVID hit and supply chain hit. And so, you know, the solar panels that they thought were going to, the solar farms that were going to be up and running uh, were not able to get up and running because the parts were stuck somewhere overseas or they could just could not be made. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he had a lot of different factors that went into it. Um, you know, the so uh, I don't know if I answered your question, but I'll just be quiet from, the, from no, this got, point. Until you, the got next question. you got it. You got it. I got to follow up with you after I finish with Kathy and TJ here. But uh, Kathy, the delay, when you think about it, could also have an impact on decision making processes in our state since the PRC will change over from an elected body, as you know, to one that is you know, appointed by the governor beginning next year. Was this part of the strategy here uh, at, at, when you look at this? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that I'm like a, a lot of the, the rest of the citizens that we're just confused about what's really going on. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, finger pointing and blaming about who's responsible for the fact that, that we might, uh, you know, have had these blackouts and now we have a solution. And again, um, I think maybe it is a part of a, a longer strategy to say that we're going to get more uh, control over what happens um, in these regulations. And that's the direction that we're going. And it's going to be, you know, the person who um, is, you know, in the governor's office controlling mm -hmm. uh, who gets to make these decisions. But um, I, I doubt very seriously if, if most of the citizenry know uh, what the Public Regulation Commission is about or who your representatives are, you know, what they were pledged to do. Mm -hmm. And and that may be even less so once um, it's an appointed uh, position. So point, I'm yeah. hoping yeah. that we'll find out more about, you know, people will really, again, just get educated about what PRC is supposed to do, that they are responsible for a lot of what happens in your life for fair and reasonable rates mm -hmm. from p and mm -hmm. TJ, it's interesting when you really think about it, uh, perhaps, and I'm not, not trying to play games with what p and doing here, but you never know what's going to happen in November. If there's a Republican in that seat, that changes the game a little bit for p and doesn't it? I don't know. Yes, it would. It mm -hmm. would totally change if there's a Republican governor. It would change. I think it would change almost everything mm -hmm. um, because uh, the oil and gas. I mean, what a huge, uh, what a huge amount of power they have in this state. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think uh, to what Kathy said. I think that, again, a lot of it's a, uh, it's a lack of trust in the government. Well, you know, and I think it's a lack of knowledge for a lot of the people out there. Uh, the PRC. What do they do? Who are they? Why are they? You know, what's the responsibility? Can we trust them? Can we trust what they do? Do they have enough information to make a, a solid judgment call on this? Because this is a big deal. This is a huge deal for mm -hmm. our state. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and, and I'll just come out, man. I'll say it. If there's one area that I am a freaking radical about, it's uh, climate and green energy. I mean, I, I am. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see the state move to green sooner than later. And I understand what Tom says is true. We had a supply chain issue with, with stuff coming over here with solar panels and stuff. That's why this was delayed. However, the last thing we need uh, is to do this too soon, mm -hmm. to switch over. Because if we do it too soon and we do it wrong and we do it badly, 
the state will lose the people on this. We can't launch before it's ready and then have the brownouts and the blackouts or whatever the Texas last year. Right. Because if, if, we, if we do this, uh, then the doubters, climate deniers will point their fingers and go, see what I tell you about this. This is all bunk. Mm-hmm. So we got to make sure we do this right. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of pressure on us to do it right. So uh, yeah. that, that you know, I hate coal. I am not a fan of coal. <laughs> we, need to, we need to keep a coal generating plant online yeah. to make sure that we don't screw this up. I said, well, what, what choice do we have? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point. Hey, Tom, um, I, I got to bring back this issue. The timing of this is interesting because it comes just a few months after the PRC shut down PM's proposed merger with Avon Grid. As we do remember, seems like it was you know many many months ago, but it was just a little bit. Any gamesmanship here? I mean, meaning, you know, we're waiting to hear from the state supreme court as it hears an appeal on that merger. Yeah, you know, there's uh, there's so many so many different ways I could go with that one. Uh, you know, there there is the the PRC. Uh, to Catherine's point, uh, has a, is in the midst of a. Um, uh, they're transitioning themselves. I mean, they're actually having their own transition act because you're going to be losing the elected commissioners in lieu for the appointed commissioners. So I think that there's some games, gamesmanship to basically, you know, uh, run the clock to right. see, you know, if they can just wait until the new appointed folks are on and then reapproach this whole uh, merger. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, of course, the thing that really tripped up this whole merger aspect is uh, the new energy economy and Mariel Nassi and her uh, her plight for wanting to protect consumers. Now, it's interesting to say that, you know, her uh, you know, focus with new energy economy was just one of many different voices at the table, but hers was the only one uh, that was uh, not congruent with other consumer right groups and such. So mm-hmm. I think what it what it says is, is that, um, you know, there just needs to be more communication uh, and more looking towards the future. To TJ's point, just briefly, is that I think there really does have to be a balance. You just can't flip the switch and go all renewable at once. Now we right. have just by disclosure, we have clients in the renewable energy uh, space, mm-hmm. but it really has to be a good balance because the battery infrastructure is not there yet. Yep. Uh, and we have plenty of uh, you know oil and gas resources uh, that you know really should be blended into a part of that plan. It's not an all or either kind of scenario. Mm-hmm. Kathy, real quick, and if I have time, I get TG on this. How does this impact the governor's failed attempt to incentivize hydrogen energy production. What, what, where does that stand now, now that we're in the middle of this other thing with coal and <laughs> everything else going back online? I think it's all like the same thing. Like, you know, we have to, it's not just one thing, all these pieces really fit together and that we have to really figure out how we're gonna work on climate change and how people understand what that means and mm-hmm. how the fossil fuels industry is fitting into that and what our solutions are. And, and I would just say that you know, as we've shifted now the mass mandate from the, the government to individuals, we also need to be concerned about what we're doing to conserve energy. And there needs to be a lot of education and outreach around what the individuals are doing to conserve energy because it's ultimately gonna be up to us. Mm-hmm. Thank you all. We'll be watching this story as it develops, including the merger appeal to the state Supreme Court from PNM I mentioned. We'll check in with our line panelists one final time in about 10 minutes to talk about a new plan to extend work shifts for Albuquerque police officers to 12 hours.
All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Already hard at work uh, next week, and we want to encourage you to tune in, subscribe, download, make sure you're ready to go with it. We've got a fascinating conversation. Sounds like the, the source of Hollywood science fiction, but there are efforts here in New Mexico as well as elsewhere to cloud seed to try to help with our ongoing drought. We wanted to know, is there any real science behind that? What does it entail? What are the possible side effects we need to know about? And so we've got that fascinating conversation coming up for you. Also, either next week or in the near future, we're going to be talking to former Albuquerque Mayor Marty Chavez. Uh, And he is now the infrastructure czar of sorts for the state, helping to figure out and disperse all of the federal infrastructure dollars that are coming our way. Want to know how that process is going, how it works, uh, what people need to know to navigate that if they have priorities on their list. Lots of great stuff coming up, coming your way soon. But until then, we thank you as always for listening and for subscribing. Leave us a review if you get a chance. We really do appreciate that and it helps a bunch. And until next time, stay safe, stay healthy.